The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It is the, just a few days, not even a week before Christmas, so uh, glad you're here. Yes, I am dressed in 70s garb. I did my best. I wanna know what's with the short ties, though. That's a weird deal that I don't fully understand. I got the back of this thing tucked into my shirt and goes all the way down. Um, anyway, so, but uh, the danger of doing a That 70s Sunday is that there are people in here that you dressed up for 70s Sunday on accident, and then people are like, hey, cool outfit, and you're like, what do you mean? So I'm sorry about that. Forgive us, we would love for you to come back on a normal Sunday, that'd be really great. But uh, anyway, thanks for being here. Um, we're gonna take a look at Luke chapter two, as well as Matthew chapter two. If you got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. If you got a smartphone with a Bible app, you can turn there as well. And uh, I'm gonna jump in in Luke chapter two, starting at verse eight, and it says this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying God and praising him for all the things they had heard, which were just as they had been told. And now Matthew chapter two, starting at verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem in Judea? They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Father, as we pray today, we ask for you to um, help us 
open our hearts to understand, I think, the power of, of these two stories, God, what these stories would mean to us. And my hope would be at the end of today, a question that we're all challenged by, not one person in this room, not one person online, assuming it doesn't apply to them. Thank you for your work. Thank you for us being able to gather and be challenged through the scriptures in Jesus' name, amen. The reason I read both of these stories is that we open in the first story in Luke chapter two with a picture of shepherds. And I bring it up because if you understand anything about shepherds um, back in Jesus' day, and there are still shepherds today in the Holy Land and individuals that are, 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 you know, have that job as a career. And when you hear about shepherds, it's amazing to me that first of all, God chose to reveal his plan of salvation through shepherds because shepherds were not people of means. They weren't rich. Shepherds weren't necessarily influential or, or necessarily well-educated. In fact, Steve Wilson in the Baptist press wrote this in talking about shepherds. In terms of their daily and nightly chores, shepherds were responsible for grazing and watering their charges, protecting them from human theft and animal predation, shearing the sheep at the appropriate time, milking them for dairy products and providing them for ritual sacrifices and or human consumption during important feasts. As a general rule, Dairy producing and wool producing sheep were too valuable to be a daily menu. And then he goes on to say, although Old and New Testaments ascribe great personal honor to the men and women with this occupation, the shepherds of the era of Christ's birth appear to be less than honored in the Jewish tradition. The rabbis who produced Talmudic literature, again in the time of Christ and a little after, often regarded shepherds as dishonest and prone to violating Jewish law. Likewise, Philo, a Jewish sage in Egypt and a contemporary of Jesus, wrote that shepherds are held to be mean and inglorious. In the Old Testament, we read that there were a whole bunch of shepherds. If you've ever read some of the Old Testament or all of it, you would maybe note that Abel was a shepherd, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. Rachel was a shepherd. Moses, David, Job, and Amos were all shepherds. Shepherds would have basically been the working class, would have been the blue collar individuals. And while some shepherds ended up with means and, and some you know, were very wealthy off of being shepherds, for the most part, they were the blue collar people. So that's the first story. The second story talks about individuals that we call, we call the magi. Now, if you know anything or you've looked into this at all, you might know that the word magi comes from the word magic. Um, and so you have this group that are called Magi, and it's the same word, if you're taking notes, that's used in Acts 13, 6 through 8, to describe somebody named Elemus. And he was called a sorcerer or a magician, and it wasn't a good thing in Acts chapter 13. And so we look at the Magi and go, wow, what amazing people. But in particular, they would have been educated educated specifically in looking at the stars or astronomy as well as probably astrology. What we know is they came from the East as, as scholars would study this out, they would say they were from Babylonia or, or Persia. And that's why when they show up on the scene and they talk about coming to see the Messiah, the reason that, that we know that they would understand some of that is because when the Jews were exiled in the Old Testament, they were exiled to Babylon and not all of them came back to Israel when they were allowed to. So they were practicing some of their Jewish tradition in some of these lands. So when the Magi come and they have some semblance of what's going on, 
they would have understood something of the worship because they knew some of the background of Israel. On top of that being educated, they were probably part of a religious cult, Zoroastrianism, or something where they're studying the stars and offering some type of cultic religion. When they show up and they, 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 they come into town, the first thing we know that they say is basically they're looking for the king of the Jews. It says in verse two, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We, has, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. So we have shepherds and we have wise men. Why do I bring up these two stories? Because you couldn't have within the Christmas story two groups of people that would have been far different in culture, far different in background. Shepherds, probably part of the Jewish culture, the Israeli culture, and, and the Magi who were part of the Gentile population, not part of Jewish tradition at all. And in fact, probably some part of cultic religion. Shepherds, go really well or mix really well as blue collar with fishermen. And of course, we know some of the most prominent disciples were fishermen, Peter and John. We also know that Jesus, when he taught parables, he was teaching parables about farming and farming again, kind of a blue collar job in particular in Jesus' day. And so shepherds go well with fishermen. Shepherds go well with farmers. Jesus taught often. In an agrarian society, a farmer went out to sow some seed or he talks about the types of seed or weeds growing among the, the, the crops and parables related to farming. Wise men, on the other hand, pair really well with those that are educated. And one of the things we know as you read through the New Testament and get beyond the gospels is there's a guy named Paul that was a persecutor. His name was Saul. He was a persecutor of the way of Christians until he has an encounter with Jesus. His name is changed to Paul and he becomes a prominent figure in the New Testament. In fact, he writes a majority of the letters that we now call the New Testament. And what he wrote of is, is going to different cities and different regions and establishing the faith we call Christianity. And he's sharing the message of the gospel. And one of the things that we notice about what Paul says is that he would see individuals become followers of Christ, understand the issue of sin and brokenness and, and what's provided because of what Christ has done on the cross to bring this reconciliation. The other thing that Paul says is at different points in different cities, influential people would become followers of Jesus. So you have this picture of people that become followers of Christ that are of no influence that, that, that don't have maybe a lot of power, that don't have a lot of resources or money, and yet the message of the gospel is for them. And then on the other hand, you have people that are of influence, and at certain points, Paul says they're people that have some sort of sway in the community, and they become followers of Christ. So, the main point that you can walk away with today and go big deal is that the gospel we understand is for everybody. But the implications of that message ought to be something that rings in your ears and my ears because oftentimes in our culture, oftentimes, especially in Western society, you have groups that we're followers of Christ, but they wave a certain banner that leaves all kinds of groups out. Or we act a certain way towards certain people that we don't like, and yet you and I ought to be the representatives of Christ to every person we encounter. 
Because as C.S. Lewis says, you and I will never meet just a normal human being. His point is that God has created every person and that the gospel message is for everybody. Big deal, whoop-de-doo, we already know that. Why'd I come to church for this? When we understand the implications of the gospel, my hope is that it opens our hearts even more. I've said before, Isaiah is a prophet from the Old Testament and he writes 800 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And we just read yesterday in the reading plan that we put out there, Isaiah 53. It's one of the most specific references to who Jesus or who the Messiah would be. And it's described in this way in Isaiah 53, four through six. Surely he took up our pain. Let me pause for a second. Let me remind you that when you read this, it's for you. This isn't about your family. It isn't for others, although it is. I want you to think about it in light of you personally, because there's something about what Isaiah is saying that ought to ring in our ears. There's something about what Isaiah is saying that ought to open our hearts and bring a level of humility that wells up inside us a deep appreciation for the work of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, teaching and performing miracles, but then persecution and torture and death on a cross. Isaiah says, surely, and this is for you and for me, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Isaiah is saying there's going to come one on the scene that will be the Messiah, but he'll be misunderstood. And isn't that the story as you read through what happens with Jesus? That that, that even as he's on the cross, what are people calling out? If you are the son of God, then come down. If you really are God, then, then save yourself. And the criminals say, save us too. It's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. They would misunderstand. Surely we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And this is where it gets very personal for each of us. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. When you walk through that verse alone, it's profound to understand what God has done for you and for me. And he opens up with that phrase, he was pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions meaning the ways that you and I have broken the law and violated our relationship with God. That there's something about, as Paul says to the church in Rome, sin that separates us from God. And yet Isaiah is saying that that this Messiah that would come would be pierced so that your transgressions could be taken care of. Crushed, the torture he would endure, crushed for our iniquities. Again, those things that separate you and I from a holy God. That, that, That for some you say, well, I've been a pretty good person. I've lived a pretty decent life. If I were to, 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 to face eternity today, I feel pretty great because the things I've done good outweigh some of the bad things about me. That's not the equation at all. Isaiah says it would come back to a Messiah 
a savior that would pay the price so that those transgressions, so those iniquities could be dealt with. It's not about your works. It's not about trying to outweigh the good things compared to the bad things. It's not about that. And then he goes on to say, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Is there anything better than realizing in repentance that you're forgiven? Have you ever committed some sin? You, you've done something you knew you weren't supposed to do, something wrong. And you carried it and you felt it and the weight of it and, and, and the, the pressure that you, you sort of felt. And then you were brought to a point of repentance and said, God, would you forgive me? Is there anything better in that moment than walking away realizing you're forgiven? There's a peace that we're not separated from God because of our sin. If we bring it to Christ, if we in essence nail it to the cross, God forgive me for what I've done wrong. The punishment that brought us peace. Why is it said that way in Isaiah? Because in our theology as followers of Christ, if you are one, in our theology, justice needed to be met. Because God is a God of justice. And the only way to deal with sin is a price being paid. Again, it's not stuff that you're, you're entirely unfamiliar with, most of us in the room. And the reason I say it is because for me and for you, my prayer is this brings us back to the deep appreciation that the gospel is for you. And I don't say that for you to go, well, I know that because I prayed a prayer a year ago and I got baptized. Or because 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whenever I drew the line, because that was great then. I'm leading to a point here that my hope is, and I prayed it a little bit earlier, that every one of us walks out of here with a different perspective than understanding I made that decision and I'm good. Isaiah says, the punishment that brought us peace. Peace because our sin is dealt with. Peace because we're reconciled. That's how Paul puts it, reconciled to God because of Christ. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And then finally, and I love that Isaiah says it, by his wounds, we are healed. There's a story that, that, that John writes in his gospel about the disciples who see a man born blind and they say, well, is he blind because of what he did? Is he blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not why. It was for the glory of God that he talks about the idea that the price that would be paid so that we could be made whole. And I wanna challenge anyone in the room. And I don't say this as a, as a pitch man. I say that before that. I hate that sometimes I feel like a pitch man up here. But part of understanding the work of Christ is the ability for you and I to go to the throne of grace and yes, receive forgiveness, but also ask for healing. And I don't ever wanna skirt that. And we get weird in church world about healing because we go, well, you know, I saw somebody that was dealing with this ailment and, and they, they prayed a lot and they asked their family to pray and they called the church and put them on a prayer chain and they put it online and thousands of people throughout the world were praying for them and they got worse and they died. What's up with that? And what we do then is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, that healing stuff, we'll just shove that aside. Can I challenge you that you and I still need to be praying and asking God for healing? 
that why wouldn't we come to God? It wasn't it Paul who said, cast your anxiety, cast your cares. When the doctor calls, where do you go? When things don't feel so well, what do you do? And it's the challenge within all of us. Well, I can find the medicine. I can go to WebMD. Don't go to WebMD. You're just going to realize you're dead in three days. I mean, right? There's always something like, you got a headache, you're probably going to die. Oh, here we go. Now that rash, probably going to lose a leg. Well, there we go. When you're facing an ailment, I want to challenge any one of us. Lord, I feel the burden of this. Lord, I feel afraid. I don't know, what's, but you're my healer. Anytime I pray for healing for anyone, and I've prayed for a couple of people already today, I remind them in prayer, he's the great physician, not just the physician. And why in the world wouldn't we bring those things to him? Why in the world wouldn't we ask? I don't feel the pressure when I pray for somebody that, that they get healed right now. I don't, I'm not the magician. I'm not the miracle worker. I'm simply walking in obedience to bring them before me. And I'm happy to pray because it's fun when a breakthrough happens. Do I see it every time? No, I'm not gonna act like I do. Do I see people, it gets worse? And Yeah, I do. But there's also in this room story after story of certain moments of breakthrough. And I can celebrate that. I don't give God's credit. Well, I mean, medical, our bodies heal naturally. Well, the doctor, great. But I still go, I'm gonna give God the credit. I say that today because even Isaiah reminds us that by his wounds, we can experience healing. And yes, spiritually, by all means, but it's used in the New Testament as well to ask God for healing. And so if you're facing anything like that, if you have any type of ailment, I wanna challenge you to bring it to God in prayer. It goes on in Isaiah 53, six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and if you go back just a few chapters in chapter 49, it's a reminder in verse six that, that Isaiah is talking about again, there's something coming. And there's a bunch of chapters, by the way, right in that area that lead up to this picture of the Messiah. But in verse six, it says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That the message of the gospel, and I know we know this, but let's not take it for granted today. The message of the gospel is that it's for all people. That maybe you walked in today and you're just visiting and it's the first time you came and you've never been here before, but some family, hey, it's Christmas time, you should come to church. And maybe you're hearing this and, and, and I, I would say, hey, listen, there is a savior who cares so much about you that he brought you here for a reason. And today I would challenge you, the best decision you could ever make is to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to save you from your sin. Because again, Paul says we all have an issue of sin. Sin is what separates our lives from a holy God. But Jesus paid the price that you and I, as Isaiah said, you and I can be forgiven of all of our sin. You and I can have life. Jesus, I believe that you paid the price so that I could be forgiven. Would you come into my life? Save me from my mistakes. Be my savior, be my Lord. It's believing in what Jesus has done for you and me that brings us to that place. 
I say that, and, and, and there's people in here that, that that would resonate with you. There's maybe people online that resonates with you. But for the rest of us, we go, great, but why am I here today? Because I think if we were all really honest, when the Magi walk into Jerusalem, they create a problem. Because the, their opening line, as they go into Jerusalem, Jerusalem is where Herod's at. It's not Bethlehem. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They walk in and say, where is this king of the Jews that was born? And Herod's like, well, wait a minute, I'm the king. Why is there another king? And the story's tragic. But I bring that up because to me, that's probably the most important question that we could ask. Where is the king? And I know you could say, well, well, the answer is easy. I've prayed the prayer. The answer is easy. I've invited him in. But here's what happens. Over and over, there's a fight in your life and my life with who gets the throne of our lives. And that's a daily battle. Where is the king? Is he on the throne of our lives or is he in the peripheral? I remember grandma talking about Jesus when I was a kid. I've got one of those books and the Bible, it's dusty. It's under the thing over here. I haven't really touched it a whole lot and, and Jesus is in there. Or is Jesus in, the, in the, 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 the little lamp that you rub every now and then and go, okay, here's what I need. We rub the lamp and Jesus pops out and we go, here's what I need. And then we walk away till we need something else later. Where is Jesus in our lives? And it's not that we put Jesus in first place. There's a, there's a, a phrase or a word that we use in theological terms that, that, that's preeminence. It's the idea that Jesus isn't just in first place. Jesus is in the only place that there is and everything else flows from that. And so when the Magi come to Jerusalem and ask, where is the king of the Jews that's been born? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. It's the question I'm challenged by, even as I put the notes together for a message like this, where is the king in your life? And it is a daily struggle. Is he on the throne today? Well, it's Sunday, he better be. What about tomorrow? What about the next day? What about wherever you go and whatever you do? What about filtering everything through the lens of Jesus? If you're on the throne, how does that impact how I do my job? Study for my classes. How I exist in my family gathering this whatever day it's gonna be for you or days. If you have preeminence, if you're the king of my life, how does that impact everything that flows out of it? Forgiveness. Healing. Stewarding what God has entrusted to me, my marriage, my kids. The time that I've been given on this planet it's easy to say, but I prayed a prayer years ago. Great. But God isn't done with us just because we prayed a prayer. What he wants is this ongoing relationship where we're becoming more like Christ day by day. Why? Because he has preeminence. 
Does everything in your life flow out of Jesus as the king? So the question is there. Where is the king of the Jews? And I love how they finish the phrase. They continue on. We saw his star when it rose in the east and we've come to worship. That's what he wants. Often in manger scenes, which there's all kinds of misunderstandings about manger scenes. There wasn't necessarily three wise men. There was just three gifts. In fact, they would travel with an entourage having means. They didn't show up at the manger. There's some theologians that that would say that they showed up possibly, you know, a year and a half, two years after Jesus was born. But we put, it's just, we can't have a manger scene and a star or other scene in our house. We put them together. That's a side note. I know that's worthless. But I bring it up because often we see like in the, the, the magi and they're like bowing and they have the little gifts. But again, that's what God wants of us. To, to, to invite the humility of what God has done in Christ into our lives. If you want a real picture of what God has done in Christ, Jesus was humiliated for you. I mean, to me, that's a pretty blunt way to put it. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he died for our sins. He experienced humiliation and suffering for you. Why do I say it that way? Because what I believe that should breed in our lives is humility. Timothy Keller writes a a simple book called Hidden Christmas. And he says this, the greatest personage in the history of the world was born in a manger. He came from Nazareth. He goes on to say, and he talks about the unique and backwards way that, that God works. God initially brings his message not through the powerful Egyptians, the Romans, the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, but through the Jews a small nation and a little race that is seldom in power. He dispatches Goliath, not with a bigger giant, but with a shepherd boy, one at whom the giant laughed. That's the way God works. How does he talk to Elijah? Through the earthquake, wind, fire? No, through the still, small voice. In ancient times, when the oldest son always got all the wealth and the second or younger sons had no social status, how does God work? Keller writes, through Abel, not Cain, through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau, through Ephraim, not Manasseh, through David, not his older brothers. At a time when women were valued for their beauty and fertility, God chose old Sarah, not young Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel, unattractive Leah, whom Jacob doesn't love. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children. He chooses Hannah, who can't have children, Samson's mother, Hannah. He chooses Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children. Why? Over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy everybody's forgotten. 
Why? Is it just that God likes underdogs? No, he's telling us something about salvation itself. And I want you to hear this. Every other religion and moral philosophy tells you, and this is Keller writing, tells you to summon up all of your strength and live as you ought. Therefore, they appeal to the strong, to the people who can pull it all together, who can summon up the courage or the blood. Only Jesus says, I have come for the weak. And here's the key. I have come for those who admit they are weak. I will save them not by what they do, but through what I do. Why do I bring up a message like this today? Yes, the gospel is for everyone. But one of the hiccups in, in this whole idea of the gospel is that we pray a prayer one time and we're good. When my point would be this, it's a battle daily to make sure that Jesus is on the throne of our lives. It's a struggle daily. And even Jesus reminded us that if we want to take up our cross, we need to do it daily. What if you and I walked in that humility all the time? How would it change the, the, the way that we do Thursday, not just Sunday? The way that we do Christmas, not just with trees and presents, but with the Savior on the throne of our hearts. What would it change about how we interact with the people around us? What does it do to maybe transform your perspective of the holidays? Where is the king of the Jews? Father, that's my prayer is that he'd be on the throne of our lives. And it's an easy thing, I think, for most of us to sort of say, and we have prayed a prayer and that's important. That's great. But that's literally the beginning of a journey that's meant to be a daily walk of surrender, a daily dying to self, a daily putting you on the throne. As I embark on today, may it be with you having preeminence. May it be with you on the throne of my heart. Let that be our prayer all the time, not just on a Sunday, not just when we're desperate, not just when we're broke, all the time, Lord. Help it be a challenge to us that you want us to come in our weakness to you. And Father, I pray that would ring in our hearts as we continue through this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.